Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm Jeremy Walker. I've got a bit of a cold, and I'm hopeful that it won't put you off as we work our way through another sermon from Charles Haddon Spurgeon today. We read each week through uh, seven sermons, typically. This week it's 416 to 422 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 7, and we're shortly going to break, God willing, into Volume 8. And if you're a regular, you'll know that each week there's a featured sermon as well, and that's the topic of this podcast. And today it's Sermon 420, Abram and the Ravenous Birds. Sermon 420, Abram and the Ravenous Birds. It's the kind of sermon at which people very easily sneer at Spurgeon. Why? Because he takes a a phrase, or a verse, in this case Genesis 15 verse 11, but when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away, and we are told he spiritualizes it. Now, to some extent, the the charge may, may fit and may stick. Uh, but I think it's also worth remembering that Spurgeon is uh, developing something that is worth our consideration. One of the things that we should take into account as we enter into this is the way that he introduces this text. He says we might use it as a picture of the ease with which faith repels all attacks that are made upon Christ, the great sacrifice of the new covenant. But he says he wants to use the text this morning to represent to us our duty when distracting thoughts invade the sanctity of our holy worship. Now what's important here is that Spurgeon first of all recognises that there's more than one way to handle this text and he's making clear that he's chosen to take it in an illustrative sense as suggesting these challenges that we face about worship, especially on the Lord's Day, trying to keep our hearts fixed on our holy business. Now, Spurgeon is in some ways following in the footsteps of men who have gone before. What often happens in some of the writers that Spurgeon appreciates, whether that's the Puritans or to some extent some of the the church fathers or uh, even some of the reformers, um, is that they will take an idea and they will use it as an illustration. Now, they are not trying to exegete the text. What they're doing is that they're taking a line through an image and saying it's a bit like this. Now, I think Spurgeon goes beyond that, and I think we could still say that uh, if you wanted to be a a strict exegete of the uh, historical grammatical school, uh, that we'd still smile with regard to what he may do with some of this. Uh, some of this text, but the force and the sense of the intended simile is helpful to us and it is representative of the way that Spurgeon handles his text. Now we might say on the one hand that Spurgeon is not being as careful as he should be in terms of understanding the text in its context and so on. However, perhaps we might also say that we have in the modern age lost a little bit of the colour and the insight that is revealed to us in the way that Spurgeon handles this text. Now I'm not going to spend a great deal of time then analysing what Spurgeon's doing with the text in an exegetical sense. 
I'm going to take him on his own terms, and I suggest that in doing so, there is still something for us to learn if we're preachers and hearers, but also there's plenty of good stuff as Spurgeon basically extends this text and makes it uh, an extended simile then, this this drawn-out treatment of what it's like to have to uh, fight off that which would come down upon the sacrifices of our worship. So he sets out the scene very simply. Uh, Abraham has killed the victims according to divine order. He's laid them in their places according to heavenly rule, and he's waiting until God shall over those victims make and ratify the covenant. But in the meantime, the buzzards and the kites and the vultures come to devour the flesh of the bullock and the ram, and Abraham chases them away so that his sacrifice may not be spoiled and he might enjoy real fellowship with God. And says Spurgeon, here's the likeness. It's like that for us too. For we have some similarity with Abraham in this, in that we too face these particular challenges and distractions when we are seeking to worship God. And so Spurgeon's going, first of all, to enumerate, that is to uh, list out some of those foul birds which come upon our sacrifice, and secondly, to show the necessity of driving them away, and thirdly, how we are to do it. So really then, this is a sermon about concentration in worship, about fighting off distractions in the worship of God, and this text is becoming an illustration as to how that happens and how we respond to it. And again, you might say, well, that's not really what the text is about, and I'm not sure Spurgeon is saying it is and must be. It's representing to us our duty when distracting thoughts invade the sanctity of our holy worship. So then, let's mention first of all, says the preacher, some of those well-known intruders which are perpetually molesting our peace and disturbing our service. The first of them is the wicked thoughts, the sons of Satan. He's reminding us that sometimes, especially when we come to worship God, whether it's in private worship or public worship, when we're seeking to sing God's praise or uh, to pray to his name, to uh, listen to the word of God, that is often when we find these particular assaults upon our heart. Now, it's one of the great griefs of a true child of God that at the moments when we'd want to be most concentrating upon God, those often seem to be the moments in which we're most distracting. We want to sing God's praise and some unholy song suggests itself. We want to pray, but we meet some fiend-like doubt. We want to listen, but wicked temptations distract us. I think if you're a preacher, uh, you might be able to testify with me that uh, often it's at the very moment at which we're going to preach or in the very act of preaching, that may be when some of the most uh, blasphemous or scandalous thoughts invade our minds and the very moments when we want to be concentrating upon our holy business is when we have to fight hardest to keep our minds off things that are vile and on things that are pure and holy. And so says Spurgeon, we need to guard against such thoughts. And in company with those foul vultures fly these ravenous kites called worldly thoughts which spring from the force of habit. Here Spurgeon's point is that we've spent six days of the week thinking about ordinary things, all of which, or many of which at least, are proper 
in their proper place. The problem is that when we come to worship, that is not the proper place for such thoughts. Those are the things that we put aside in order that we may come to God. How many there are, says Spurgeon, true believers in Christ who would scorn to look at the ledger on the Sunday and yet their mind is hampered with accounts and debtor and creditor will be striking balances continually in their brain. It means you're not actually in the place of work. You're not actually having to uh, open up your books or uh, fire up your computer and think about your incomings and your outgoings. And yet that's what your brain is taken up with. And so we wonder that the Sabbath is not a refreshment to us. But how is it likely to be when we still continue in our worldly employments, giving our hearts really to the world, though we profess to give our bodily presence to the service of Christ? And so here's the second uh, battle that we face, not just the wicked thoughts that can come in, but the business of the week that presses in upon us, often because it's what we've been taken up with for the other six days. And then there's another set of ravens croaking over us, anxious thoughts, which are the fruits of our unbelief. Someone might say, well, how can I help that? If you knew what I was going through, ah, yes, but while you make excuses, it is written, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So your anxiety on this seventh day in the time of worship needs to be put to one side. Why do you need to carry it on the one day of the week when you've been given a particular privilege of laying it to one side in order to come before the Lord God? And then in our prayers and in our Sabbath worship, we shall be disturbed by those carrion crows called annoying thoughts, the offspring of our vanity. And what's disappointing here is just how petty we can be, because Spurgeon talks about Uh, such things as how someone is dressed or where someone is sitting or uh, whether there was a a mistake made at the door or if you've not got your own chair or your proper seat or uh, you're standing in an inconvenient place. Says Spurgeon, you know these are all trifles, arrant trifles, the most despicable of things, but how many there are that irritate themselves about them. It's the person who perhaps comes in and thinks, oh, I can't believe I'm sitting behind these children or, oh, they're making such a noise or, well, I'm not sure that he or she is appropriately dressed or someone's come in late or why aren't they being quiet or why are they anything? So many ways that the devil will use to stir up our little frustrations, these these little punctilios that Spurgeon calls them. So that if if we're not being treated properly, if things aren't the way that we think they should be, if it's not the way they ordinarily are, we, we cannot worship with comfort. It's a tragic thing that such small problems can lead to such big barriers against us worshipping God in spirit and truth. Spurgeon says, when a soul is hungry, it little matters how it gets its food. When a heart's really set on finding Christ, the man will care but little what may be his comfort or his discomfort. In other words, it's really not significant and you shouldn't let it become so. But then, a brood of eagles which still haunt Mount Zion. Ecclesiastical anxieties. What does he mean by this? Why, that sometimes when our minds should be perfectly free for worshipping God, 
church business, perhaps church differences, thrust themselves upon us. The deacon thinks he may worry himself a little about something that has occurred with the poor. The elder thinks it would be justifiable to be thinking over the case of such and such a refractory individual, uh, troublesome or stubborn, argumentative, whose case has troubled him. The member thinks he may be fretting fretting about the dullness of the ministry. The minister thinks he may be groaning because some in the galleries have not joined the church. And mark, all these are good things in their places, but they have no business at all with us when we come up to God's house to worship him. So Spurgeon says, I'm not trying to cover all the bases. I think you can yourself remember many things which haunt you. And it's good then for us to stop perhaps now and to pause, maybe to think after we've uh, finished listening to this podcast, what are the things or the kinds of things that so often and so easily bother me, bug me, distract me and disturb me when I go to worship God? Where and how do these things come in upon me? Those then are the birds. I have indicated the intruders, says Spurgeon. Now let me seek to stir you up to chase them away. In other words, there are good reasons for us to fight against these distractions and invasions. The first of them is for our own sake. We whose hardest toil is on this day, says Spurgeon, speaking now as a preacher, and who find that the great cares of a church so large as this will follow us to our bed, and that all the days of the week we are occupied thereby, find it to be one of our sternest trials to resist the fear that our reason may reel, for it is too hard for any man, even for the minister of God, to be always thinking, always working, even though that work be for God himself." His point is, you need a day to stop thinking about these other things. If you are perpetually taken up with these doubts, these fears, these cares, these concerns, he's thinking now primarily of the, not, not so much those invading evil thoughts, but the, the returning business of the week. He says, you are going to wear out. You don't have the mental energy to be always having these things upon your souls. He says, I've heard persons say I'd sooner wear out than rust out. There's no occasion for either. If we would but keep this day of rest as a perfect rest to our heart and soul, but that we can never do unless we love Christ, for a Sabbath is an impossibility to an unconverted man. If we would but... As Christians resting in Christ keep this first day of rest, giving our souls thorough ease, there would be no fear of the brain giving way. We should labour on even to a good old age and then die in peace and our works would follow us. Spurgeon's point is, and perhaps this is something we need to take to heart in our frantic modern age, is that if we gave our brains a real Sabbath, if we took ourselves away from all other business and investment that we're necessarily often taken up with on the other six days, then we would not have the kind of mental pressures, stresses, strains and breakdowns that are increasingly common in our day and age. People do not give themselves a proper break in which God may be their all in all. And that has a detrimental effect upon our minds as well as upon our souls. A worldling, says Spurgeon, is under the law. 
it's his duty to remember the seventh day to keep it holy, for so runs the law, which is his taskmaster. But I am not under the law, and therefore I keep this day, not the seventh, but the first day of the week, on which my Saviour rose again from the dead. I keep it not of law, but of grace. I keep it not as slavish bondage, not as a day in which I am chained and hampered with restraints against my will, but a day in which I may take holy pleasure in serving God and in adoring before his throne. I don't think Spurgeon's necessarily saying that the the rest of the world should take a Saturday off and the Christians should take a Sunday off. But his point is that the first day of the week is to a believer a day of joy, rest, peace and thanksgiving. And if we drive away all those distractions so that we can really rest today, really focus on our God, it will be good for our bodies, for our souls, good mentally, spiritually, temporally and eternally. And then you'll do your work well during the other days of the week far better. You don't need to work on the Lord's day in order to get the other six days well done. In fact, it is better for you to take a rest in order that you may be able to then give yourself to the work on the other six days. The old Puritans used to say that the first day of the week was the market day of the soul. And that's the day when you laid up stock then for the week. This is our market day. This is a day we need to give ourselves to God. Otherwise, we cannot function as we should in righteousness and with peace on the other six days. And then in the next place, the character of this day demands that you should get rid of these thoughts. It is the day on which God said, let there be light and there was light the day in which Christ rose again from the dead for our justification. It's the day of freedom. It's the day of delight and of peace and calm and rest and tranquility. Work and thoughts of work, doubts, fears, legality, self-righteousness are all inconsistent with the spirit of the day. For Christ has said, it is finished. And we must cease to work too, not only with our hands, but with our souls, working no more for life, for that is given working no more for justification, for that is concluded, but today resting in Christ, for it is finished, and finding peace in him, for there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, leaving all our cares with him, for nothing can separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ, and then giving up our souls to a gracious, glorious and gracious holy day, which shall be a preparation for the eternal enjoyment of the perpetual feast of the glorified at the table of God in heaven. It's God's day, says Spurgeon. It's his time. And this is the blessing that we will get if we give ourselves to seeking him. And so to indulge vain or anxious thoughts when engaged in God's worship is grievous to the Holy Spirit. How many of us have lost our comfort and the joy and peace of our faith because we have not, when we have been upon our knees or engaged in sacred songs or in listening to the word, compelled our thoughts to keep at home and bow down to the Most High. Says Spurgeon, do you not understand that when the Holy Spirit is at work in you, in order that you may enjoy these blessings, that for you to indulge, to carelessly indulge in such cares and concerns and distractions must be a grief to him. 
So when we know what God is and what we are about in worshipping him, then we shall understand how important it is not to grieve the spirit in this way. And then a last reason here. If you don't drive those thoughts and cares away, you will find that they increase and multiply. I have not, he says, to complain in this congregation of any want of attention during the service, but I have had the pain of seeing assemblies where the wandering eye has been indulged till at last it would be as pleasant and perhaps as profitable to address a load of bricks as to address the people who were assembled. And then in the last place, his third point, how are we going to do this? How do you drive away these distracting, invading thoughts? First of all, says Spurgeon, set your heart upon it, for when the soul is set upon a thing, then it is likely to accomplish it. In other words, realize how important this is and set yourself to do what God calls you to do. I must give my soul to eternal matters today, and I will, says the heart that wants to put these things to flight. My soul cries after God. I must have done with earth. I must begin with heaven. And so when you're set upon it, half the battle is already fought and the victory is almost won. The next thing to do then, having set your soul upon doing the thing, is to prepare your heart before coming to the sacrifice and that will assist you when you shall be there. Men ought not to preach without preparation, he says, granted, but neither ought you to hear without preparation. Men come into places of worship, they don't know what they want, they don't know why they've come. Perhaps it's to just see the place or hear the preacher and they go away and they have no spiritual profit. But how could they? They don't know what they're about. So prepare your heart in private by communion with God and then you shall have communion with him in public. Meet God in your house and then you shall meet him in his house. And then cry to the Spirit of God for help to make your spirit rest. And then cry to the Spirit of God for help to make your spirit rest. Though you have trouble, says Spurgeon, he is the comforter. You are weak, but the Spirit helps your infirmities. You have sins, but it is him who applies the peace-speaking blood of Christ. So ask him for help. Yes, determine to seek after God without distraction. Yes, prepare your heart to do that. But do not think you can do this in your own strength. So cry to the Spirit of God for help. And then when you've done this and you come up to the house of God, still seek to continue in the same frame of mind, remembering in whose immediate presence you are. So come into the presence of God, conscious that the Almighty is there. That will help you to focus your mind and your heart. Many uh, examples, says Spurgeon, you might give of the attention which superstitious pagans and heathens paid to their worship. And shall we then be behind them in the reality and sincerity of our adoration of the Most High and Holy God? So remembering who we've come to worship will help us. Then, take care that your faith be an active exercise, or else you cannot chase these thoughts away. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Be still, and know that he is God. And finally, take care that you attend a ministry which draws you from earth, for there are some dead ministries which make the Sabbath day more intolerable than any of the other days of the week. 
So, says Spurgeon, make sure you're about a heavenly ministry. Notice, there are controversial ministries in which the brain is set to work and exercised and troubled with questions and dilemmas and disputes and contentions. It's not wicked to preach such sermons on the Sabbath day, but it's not consistent with Sabbath rest. In other words, if your preacher is always putting before you issues and and battles and always fighting them over, you are not going to obtain the blessing that you need. Seek a ministry, says Spurgeon, full of covenant faithfulness, full of Christ, a ministry not of ifs and buts, but of shalls and wills, a ministry which vindicates the Spirit's power, which, while it teaches fully the sinner's abject helplessness, dwells upon the absolute omnipotence of God to save. Seek one which preaches a full Christ for empty sinners, whose theme is death and resurrection, whose object is to make Christ precious to your heart and to compel you thus to trust in him. Then you shall find it more easy to rest on the Sabbath day than if you should attend under the legal preacher, whose theme is moral duties, or the merely doctrinal preacher, whose object is contention and fighting, or the mere experimental preacher, whose aim shall be to stir up the filthy mud of your heart instead of pouring into you the pure, clean water of the truth as it is in Jesus. Look forward to the day. Thank God you can say on the Lord's day, this is the day of rest. Oh, for those heavens on earth, he says, those precious queens of days, time is the ring and these sabbaths are the diamonds set in it. The ordinary days are but the walks in the garden, hard trodden and barren, but the Sabbaths are the beds full of rich, choice flowers. This day is care's balm and cure, the couch of time, the haven of divine calms. It's so important, says Spurgeon, and we might say even more important today because we've so much lost our sense of a Lord's Day, of a Christian Sabbath, to set aside this day and to set ourselves aside for this day and the business of worshipping God upon it. And says Spurgeon, you are going to find that that is hard business. There will be many distractions and diversions that will take you away, these various invading thoughts. But you must, if you are to honour God, bless your own soul, obtain the favour that God intends for you, you must seek the Holy Spirit to help you in setting your mind and your heart well prepared upon these holy things, coming with faith to a living and true God, and, says Spurgeon, sitting under a ministry that lifts you heavenward so that you can leave behind some of these distracting thoughts. Now, as Spurgeon often says, my voice is now going, and uh, it's as true for me today as it was for him then. So I simply close with those words that he often ends with, speaking to the unconverted. You also need peace. May God give you to know your sin, enable you to fly to the Saviour and find in him all your soul wants. May he enable you to rest in Christ today and then you shall keep Sabbaths on earth till you keep the eternal Sabbath before the throne. For thus says the Spirit, they rest from their labours. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have rest. Trust him and so you shall be saved and your spirit shall be at ease. Well, may God grant these things to us. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for putting up with a a croaky voice today. Next week, our sermons are 423 through to 429. 
We're breaking into Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 8, and our featured sermon is 427, the first in that volume, A Psalm for the New Year. Thank you, and God bless. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.